Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. Gather round as I try to explain why you might get frustrated at spell check on your phone or computer. The answer has to do with a guy named Noah. No, no, not, not that Noah from the Bible, the guy with the boat. Uh, another one. This Noah was annoyed. As a proud new American, he believed that his country needed to set itself apart from its former colonial masters in every way possible so the new nation could be truly different and independent and separate. By 1828, there was no need to take up arms anymore, so Noah picked up his pen. As an author of school books, spelling books to be specific, his annoyance had to do with the way the British spelled their words. Why did color have that extra U in it? The proper way to spell center was C-E-N-T-E-R, not R-E. Everywhere he looked, he saw what he believed to be nonsensical spellings. He made a list of such annoyances. And in 1828, at the age of 70, Noah Webster published his American Dictionary of the English Language. It was a hit, largely again because Noah was already that guy who had authored all the spelling books being used in schools. And so it came to pass that Noah's preferred spellings, again, modifications of the original British versions of these words, became adopted by America. Forget that the British actually invented English, because, well, whatever. Uh, anyway, these spellings are what's accepted today as correct in the United States. So that means if you have a computer or a phone or whatever, and you have your default language set to English, it most certainly often means American English by default. And that means if you try to spell certain words in the British or Canadian or Australian way, you get a red squiggly line underneath. Now, this really annoys me. Maybe you too almost as much as when my phone insists that I meant to spell ducking. I've never meant to put ducking in a text or whatever, but that's another story. This story does explain why your device seems to hate your spelling skills. It goes back to grumpy Noah Webster and his nationalistic demands on language. Rock music has been with us since the early 1950s, and that's long enough for many things to become entrenched, familiar, and basically part of the scenery. There are so many things about rock that we just accept and don't really question or wonder about. But just like the spell check on your phone, if you start thinking about some of these things, you might wonder where they came from, why we do it, or who came up with the idea in the first place. Let's see if I can help. I call this episode The Rock Explainer. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. From 2012, that's Metropolitan with a song called Let Me Explain. And that's a nice introduction to what I hope to do here. I'm Alan Cross, and I'm going to attempt to explain certain things about rock culture with zero condescension. 
The last thing I want to do is talk down to anyone because I've always believed that music is for everybody. And the more you know, the more you'll get out of it. Rock has its own strange language and styles and customs and habits. What are the sources for these things? And like I said earlier, some of what we're going to talk about is so ingrained in rock culture that you may have never questioned their existence in the first place. Let me give an example. Why do audiences hold up their lighters at certain points in a concert? Lighters have been replaced by cell phones, but the effect is the same. The communal shining of a light in the darkness of a concert venue. Who came up with that idea? For the answer, we have to go back to September 13th, 1969. The Toronto Rock and Roll Revival was happening at Varsity Stadium, and John Lennon was preparing to go on. John had impetuously accepted this gig, and when he arrived in Toronto, he faced two things. First, he was dope sick because he was a heroin addict and was going through withdrawal. And second, he found he had horrible, horrible stage fright. This was the first time John had ever performed outside the Beatles, which at the time were still a going concern. They had not broken up yet. And to make matters worse, many of the other acts on the bill were John's idols. Chuck Berry, Gene Vincent, Little Richard. John was afraid he was going to embarrass himself and wouldn't come out of the dressing room. The MC for that night was Kim Fowley, the weirdo record producer who would later be disgraced by sexual scandal. Ahead of Lennon's set, he went on stage and asked the audience to create a welcome atmosphere. His idea was for everyone to hold up some fire, lighters, matches, whatever, to create a candlelit vibe for John's entrance. The audience of 20,000 responded with little wisps of flame everywhere. That must have been quite the sight. And as far as anyone can tell, this was the first time anyone had seen such a thing. And from that night in Toronto in September 1969, the practice of holding up a lighter to encourage something from the performer or to augment a certain experience spread to all corners of the world. For example, if you've ever been to a U2 show anywhere on the planet, you'll know what happens when this song starts. We're going to celebrate the future. Next question. If you're into metal and hard rock, someone has flashed the devil horns at you. Your hand is in a fist with your index and pinky finger up. What's that all about? Who came up with that idea? You may have heard the story that metal singer Ronnie James Dio popularized flashing the devil horns, which is true. He did. But did he invent it? No. When asked if he was the first person to flash the devil horns, Dio said the following. I doubt very much if I was the first one who ever did that. That's like saying I invented the wheel. I think you'd have to say that I made it fashionable. It's not the devil's sign like we're here with the devil. It's an Italian thing I got from my grandmother. It's called the malocchio. It's to ward off the evil eye or to give the evil eye, depending on which way you do it. It's just a symbol but it had magical incantations and attitudes to it. And I felt it worked very well during the time I was with Black Sabbath. So I became very noted for it and everyone else started to pick up on it and away it went. But I would never say I take credit for being the first to do so. I say I did it so much that it became the symbol of rock and roll of some kind. Okay, so if it wasn't Ronnie James Dio, where did the horns come from? If you want to go way back, Buddhists, have used the gesture for centuries, where it represents the expulsion of demons. But that had nothing to do with any kind of music. 
Gene Simmons of KISS claims he was the first to flash the horns in November 1974. He even tried to trademark the move with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office on June 16, 2017. When that hit the news, Gene was hit with all kinds of blowback and he withdrew the claim. We could look at Black Sabbath, Ronnie James Dio, but in 1969, bass player Geezer Butler says he used it once. Another possible source is an American rock band called Coven, who was into all sorts of occult stuff. Also in 1969, they released an album called Witchcraft Destroys Minds and Reaps Souls. And on the cover, we see singer Jinx Dawson doing the horn thing. He claims to have first done it on stage in 1967. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. All we have to go on is Jinx's word. The real originator of the devil horns in music may in fact be, once again, John Lennon. If you look at the cover of the Beatles' 1968 soundtrack to Yellow Submarine, what do you see? An animated version of John doing the horn thing. And if we go back to a photo session from 1966, there's John flashing the sign again. Not only that, but John claimed to have invented heavy metal with the Beatles' song Ticket to Ride in 1965. Now, on the surface, that seems a little silly because it hardly sounds metal, but it is one of the first examples of a rock song using a guitar riff as its foundation. So, do we give the invention of the devil horns to John Lennon? In light of any other evidence to the contrary, I can't see why we can't. Okay, let's let's practice this with some Metallica. When we return, we're going to go look at another couple of aspects of rock culture to ask a few questions about concert t-shirts and backstage passes. I'm going to bet that if you're listening to this program, you probably have your fair share of concert t-shirts and other assorted merch. Have you ever stopped to wonder who came up with such a capitalistic way to wring more money out of music fans? This is a multi-billion dollar business and a very important revenue stream for artists, especially in the era of streaming. In 2016, merch accounted for 3.1 billion U.S. dollars in global sales. That's not far off from the gross revenue from live concerts, which for the same year was 4.88 billion. So how did this all start? Well, I'll tell you. And to get the story straight, we have to cycle through a bunch of different people. We'll begin in July 1956, when a guy named Hank Saperstein had a meeting with Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's manager. Hank had a company called Special Products, Inc., which already had contracts providing merchandising opportunities for TV shows like The Lone Ranger. He also had a deal with Disney to sell things like Mickey Mouse paraphernalia. In a brand new type of deal, Hank paid the colonel $22,500 upfront, plus 45% of sales to produce and sell Elvis Presley merchandise. There were at least 30 different items, ranking from t-shirts to sneakers to belts. By the end of that year, Six months' worth of sales totaled $22 million, and an industry was born. The next important person is Michael Vasilitone. He's the guy who invented the first machine that could reliably print things on clothing. He started by printing logos and names on bowling shirts, but it wasn't long before other people started using his machine to print special T-shirts. That was 1960. In 1963, Beatles manager Brian Epstein handled the Beatles' merch rights over to Nicky Byrne. 
he created a company called Celtabe, which is Beatles spelled backwards. In retrospect, this was a stupid deal, securing just 10% in revenues for the band. That probably cost the Beatles organization more than $100 million over the years. Burns sold everything from Beatles wigs to lunchboxes to bubblegum. Then, a big development. In 1966, a guy named Stanley Mouse designed the first Grateful Dead t-shirt. You know the Skeleton and Roses logo? Stanley designed that. And this has gone down in history as the first modern concert t-shirt, a Grateful Dead shirt. Before this, selling merch to your fans was seen as very uncool, far too commercial. But the dead thought it would be cool if their fans walked around with their name on their chests. And once that started, everyone got into the t-shirt business. In 2021, a dead shirt made by Mouse in 1967 sold for nearly $18,000. Fun fact, too. Stanley's dad was an animator who worked at Disney. He worked on films like Snow White. The next milestone was April 23, 1971. The Rolling Stones released their Sticky Fingers album, the first record to feature the famous Lips and Tongue logo. It's one of the most recognizable pieces of rock and roll art ever. It was designed by John Pash, and he was paid a grand total of, wait for it, 50 pounds for it. No one has any idea how many t-shirts the Rolling Stones have sold with that logo, and not just t-shirts, everything. Within two years, concert t-shirts and band swag was everywhere. Ace Frehley designed the famous KISS logo in 1973. In 1974, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood opened a store in London that was eventually called Sex, and they started selling all kinds of merch related to this new subculture called punk. And here's one more. 1974 and the formation of Winterland Productions by Bill Graham. They soon had clients like Fleetwood Mac and Bruce Springsteen. Now, it was still slightly uncool to sell stuff to your fans. I mean, music was supposed to be this pure thing. So merch tables were often placed in out-of-the-way places and venues. But within a few years, they were everywhere, and fans were screaming, Take my money! The industry exploded from there. In 1990, Depeche Mode made $1.5 million over just two nights in Los Angeles. Like I said, today's band merch industry is worth well beyond $3 billion. And it all really began with that deal Colonel Tom Parker made with Hank Saperstein, the guy who sold Mickey Mouse t-shirts, back in 1956. Okay, what about backstage passes? These things are gold. They allow some people past security into the hallowed areas where the public is not usually allowed. Where did they come from? Well, one of the most frequent questions I get is, how can I get a backstage pass to, insert name of artist here? My answer is always the same. You can't. And what do you think you'd find backstage anyway? Wild parties? Naked groupies? Tables heaped with cocaine? Roman orgy levels of food? Or were you just thinking of hanging with the band in their dressing room before they go to work? Well, let me set you straight. Most of what you've ever heard or read about what goes on backstage is a complete lie. Yes, things used to be a little looser, or so I've heard. But in today's concert business, there's not a lot of time or patience for messing around with people who don't belong backstage. Schedules are tight, security is strict, and privacy is an issue. In the earliest days of rock and roll, security wasn't as tight as it is today, unless you were talking about someone with Elvis-like status. 
If you had a business card that proved you had business backstage, you could probably bluff your way in. If you were a pretty woman, your face and your body was your pass. The modern backstage pass was invented by a Cincinnati guy named Dave Otto. As rock became a bigger and bigger business, it became necessary to restrict backstage access to working people and special guests. Dave figured out a way of printing graphics on a flexible rectangle of rayon with an adhesive backing. These patches adhered very well to all sorts of clothing and skin. And because they were flexible, they worked very well with body contours and did not fall off. And once applied, it wasn't a good idea to peel it off because the glue didn't work as well the second time around, if at all. These passes started being introduced on concert tours in 1973. And from then on, backstage passes became sort of a currency, something more valuable than even a front row ticket because, theoretically, it lets you go anywhere. It lets you go where no mere mortals can. The backstage pass became your invitation to untold glories and horrors behind the curtain. And yeah, things got kind of weird, at least in the old days. Like I said, things are much different today. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't any misbehavior or, um, how do we put this, activities of questionable legal nature. But the touring business is big business, and you can't mess around. Not too much, anyway. And besides, people have cell phones now, and you don't want to, you know, let any secrets slip. I've been lucky because my job has got me backstage passes to plenty of locations. In fact, I've got a pass for these guys hanging in my record library. The next thing we're going to investigate is why every concert seems to feature some moron yelling, Free Bird! at the stage. Unless it's a Leonard Skinner show, that's just stupid. Or funny, if it's your thing. Who came up with that idea? The best anyone can tell is that this was the invention of a Chicago radio DJ named Kevin Matthews. Back in the 1970s, he had a running on-air bit where he'd encourage listeners, people known as the Kevheads, to yell, Free Bird! at any concert. And the more inappropriate the occasion, the better. One story has Florence Henderson, remember the mom from the Brady Bunch, having to endure demands for Free Bird during one of her concerts. Or it might have been a performance by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Anyway, here's a quote from Matthews himself. It was never meant to be yelled at a cool concert. It was meant to be yelled at someone really lame. If you're going to yell free bird, yell free bird at a Jim Neighbors concert. People who are conceited, the so-called artists who really get offended by it, but they deserve it. The origin origin of this seems to be Leonard Skinner itself. If you go to their 1976 album, One More From The Road, you will hear this. What song is it you want to hear? Okay, so that recording could very well be the very beginning of this meme, a meme that was there before the internet. It's fascinating how something like this was able to take hold just through ordinary word of mouth. But at the same time, you can imagine how many performers hate this breach of etiquette. Someone once told me that they were at a performance of the ABBA musical Mamma Mia, and during a quiet bit, somebody yelled out, Freebird! Or maybe you've been to a professional sporting event that has an organist. It's quite possible that the organist's repertoire includes Freebird because of this whole thing. However, some bands will play along and get all ironic about it. Like these guys, Dred Zeppelin. 
if you call for Freebird during one of their sets, they'd oblige in this fashion. For I'm as free as a bird now. How about you? So that's the story of the dude who yells, Freebird, at a concert. When we come back, I want to deal with another meme that doesn't seem to have any answer. There's nothing to explain it. Maybe you can help. I'm calling this episode a rock explainer as we try to explain certain things about rock music and rock culture that always come up, but few people question. Or if they do, they don't ask the right questions. We just finished going through the meme of someone in the audience yelling, Freebird! at a stage, creating a very awkward moment during a concert. It appears to have come from a 1976 live album by Leonard Skinnerd, which was adopted by a Chicago radio DJ for his audience, and it just spread from there. I have been studying another audience phenomenon since 2014, but I have yet to come up with a satisfactory answer. And it has to do with the special audience participation lyrics to Billy Idol's version of Moni Moni, which was originally done by Tommy James and the Shondells back in 1968. If you've ever been to a Billy Idol concert or a dance club or even a wedding and Billy's version of this song is played, the audience or the dancers engage in a call and response thing that's extremely obscene. Okay, let me, let me see what I can hint at here. When Billy sings, here she comes now, singing Moni Moni, the audience responds with some version of the following, hey, mother F, get laid, get effed. And that will be repeated throughout the verses for the entire song. And there are slight differences in the wording of that chant that differ by geographic location. For example, what's used in Toronto is slightly different from what they traditionally say in Denver. And the Denver chant is different than Texas. I've documented about a half dozen different versions of those audience lyrics. And what's more is that all of these chants seem to have emerged spontaneously at more or less the same time. Billy's live version first appeared on October 2nd, 1987, long before there was an internet to propagate memes. So how did this happen? It certainly didn't happen with radio. I've never been able to find any music videos from the era that featured the chant. And even if such a video existed, MTV or much music would have never played it. But here's what I've been able to uncover. Some say that the tradition extends all the way back to Tommy James' original version when it was played in New York clubs, 68, 69, 1970. One rumor involves lip reading. There's allegedly a video where we can see Billy Idol clearly mouthing those words. One of the first documented occasions of the crowd chant was at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas in the late 80s, an occasion during which Billy endorsed the lyrics himself. Another possibility. During an MTV interview, Billy said the song was playing on the radio the night he lost his virginity. He also recounts that in his autobiography, Dancing With Myself. Fine, but I, I still wasn't satisfied. Having run into several dead ends, I called Billy Idol myself to see if he could shed any light on the matter. I, okay, I have to ask uh, a question that's been bothering me for a very long time. You're the only guy that can answer the question. I have been doing extensive anthropological research on the special crowd lyrics that show up every time in Moni Moni. 
This is something that happened before the internet, before you could say something like this on the radio or online, before you would print it in a magazine. Where the hell did those special audience lyrics come from in Moni Moni? Well, I, I heard it was, uh, they started off in like those frat houses, you know, back in the 80s, I suppose, um, that the frat house started it, and then it kind of graduated to the discos, and then the, the DJs would sort of like, yeah, the crowd would start shouting it, and yeah, that's, it kind of went on from there. And then we even, well, we even sing that, you know, even sing these other words. <laughs> And uh, I don't know. It's a lot of fun, really. So, uh, well, yeah. yeah. So, it, okay. I, 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 I've been seriously. I've been doing a lot of writing about this because I'm fascinated by it. So, yeah. so you say it began in in, in the frat houses of the, of, of uh, London universities in colleges. That's what I heard. Yeah, they started off in colleges, frat houses, or somewhere, and then it graduated to discos, and then it went on from there, and then they went. They graduated to our live shows. So. <laughs> when did you become aware of these lyrics? What, uh, when the audience, it kind of, I think it started um, along with uh, when we did kind of the live version of Moni Moni, which got to number one. That's kind of when it started, around 1987, 80, yeah, 87. Right. So you know, many years after the song was recorded. Yeah. And okay. Yes, it just started. I don't know. They just started. They they just started doing it. It was kind of wild, actually. It was nothing to do with us. So it was. <laughs> it's kind of fantastic in a way. Well, it is. Again, it's it's this giant intercontinental meme that managed to spread without the use of the internet, without the use of anything that we can actually trace it to. So it's 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 fascinating. You can be like I say, you're you're a fascinating anthropological study. <laughs> All right, so we're no closer to an answer, but I will continue my research. Here's the song. Sing along using whatever words are native to your area. I love trying to figure out why things are the way they are. And sometimes those puzzles are right in front of us, but we don't recognize them. As a result, we just accept them without question. But now we know a little bit more about things like concert t-shirts, backstage passes, concert memes, and so on. Don't you feel a little bit more knowledgeable? Listen, if there's something about rock culture that you think needs explaining in a, in a simple, matter-of-fact way, drop me a line through alan at alancross.ca, and I will do my best to uncover the answers for you. Again, non-condescending, there were no dumb questions. Meanwhile, catch up on all kinds of ongoing history programming through our handy podcast. There were hundreds of them available waiting for free download. And you can go to any platform you like. Rate and review if you get a chance. We can also meet up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And should you need a hit of music news and information, there's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter, which guarantees that you won't miss a thing. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.